You're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I got to tell you, people, I have a guy who's a legendary musician, a great drummer, and he's got a lot of stuff going on, and I want to hear about his gold records, because I know he has a ton of them, and my guest uh-huh. is Carmine Apiece. How you doing, Carmine? Good man. So, is this a video or audio? Well, we, we we do video to talk to each other, but when I record, when I air it, it's all audio. So, oh, good, good. So, I was just working out. I, I looked at the time. I said, "Oh God, I'm late." You know. You uh, what, so, are, are you a Peloton guy, or what kind of workouts are you doing? Well, I was doing. Yeah, I got a treadmill here and a bench and weights. You know, and it's all in my studio with the, the drums and. There's drums all over the place and CDs and gold records and awards and all this stuff here. You know, there's all kinds of stuff. So this is like my man cave. <laughs> now, now, how important is it? Because I know you got you have some tour dates coming up. And I know you're always performing for years. How important is it for you to keep in shape? I mean, is that something that you really have to keep an eye on? Because drumming seems like such a fatiguing workout. Well, it is. But, you know, I don't do it. Especially in the last year, I didn't do it as much as I always did. You know, I used to do 40, 50, 60 shows a year. Last year, I did four, you know. But I've always had a regimen of, like, every other day, go to the gym, work out. Fortunately, uh, I'm still a member of L.A. Fitness, which is down the street, but I never go there. I just work out over here, you know, because it's a lot easier to walk through the garage, walk in here, work out, and then. When I'm done with the workout, if I have to do some session, you know, I'll just go in there and do it, you know. Now, tell me about the gold records. Uh, who are they, who, who are a bunch of them from? I know you've worked with so many people, but I, it always fascinates me when I see a collection of gold records because all of us well, outsiders look at it. A lot of them are, are Rod Stewart records. Uh, you want me to show you them one by one? Yeah, yeah, I'd love that. All right, hold on. Let me go in there and... I'll put these things on. And, you know, these aren't all of them. I don't have enough room to do it all. So, like, this one here is Rod Stewart. This one is Bullet Boys because uh, the Bullet Boys used to be King Cobra. And they they took some of the songs that we were working on as King Cobra, took them into the Bullet Boys, and made them successful. So they gave me that. I said, thank you. Uh, that one's a Rod one. It's a platinum. That's a... Uh, you know, in different countries, too. This, I believe, is Canada. This is a Rod one. Uh, that's from America. This is a Rod one from America. This is a UNICEF album that came from uh, Do You Think I'm Sexy was on that record. And it went platinum. So they gave us that. This one's Pink Floyd. And I did uh, Dogs of War on that one. This one is... Uh, a British Rod record, that's platinum, you see the British flag. This is a Sabian Award. This is a congratulations, 40 years of innovating drummer. That was like, well, 15 years ago. Okay. And this is a Rod album, the Tonight I'm Yours double album. I believe that's in Canada. You know, and this one is a American Footless Fancy Free. This one's a Paul Stanley one. That's a solo album. This one here is a Rod one uh, again, and that's a platinum one. This is a, a British platinum Rod record for the best of. This is an American one over there uh, for here. And this was uh, 
momentary lapse of reason, the gold one. The other one was a platinum one. I could get five platinums, but I don't have any way to put it. <laughs> this was this is a Tommy Bowen record I did. Uh, these are the singles. Um, I believe this one was, uh, which one was this? Uh, I don't even know which one that is. Oh, You're In My Heart. This one was Do You Think I'm Sexy Gold. This one's Do You Think I'm Sexy Platinum. That one's Young Turks Gold. These are awards that you get when the album, when a single goes to number one, you get them as a, if you wrote the song as a publisher and a writer from ASCAP. And that was my Japanese Guitar Zeus uh, album award. And uh, that's all the albums I had room for <laughs> over here. But then I got all these other different kind of awards. You know, if you want to go to those. These are like, uh, you know, the Rock Walk of Fame and at the Guitar Center on Sunset Boulevard. You know, these are uh, just different awards from, uh, like this is a Drum Legend Award from the Guitar Center. This was a key to the city of Niceville, Florida. <laughs> Funny enough. This was a modern drummer. First rock drumming pole awards in 1979. This one was from a festival I did, you know, mostly like appreciation for you know, the stuff that I've done, you know, and uh, hold on. Yeah. So, uh, and you have over here, you have, uh, I've got an interesting one over here. Well, this is a certificate uh, from UNICEF. They're giving them money. I, I did things with money. Then I have artwork that I do. So this is a piece of artwork it's called Drum City. Right. And this is the Carmine Peace Day in Los Angeles. So it's a proclamation. I, I gave this to my parents. They're gone, both gone now. So I, I took hold of it. How, know, did, how, did, great. how did that come about? How did the Carmine Peace Day uh, come about? Well, my manager did, and I was doing these drum off contests, uh, finding new you know drummers, uh, young drummers, and and any money I made, I gave. Uh, I gave money to charities, you know, UNICEF and stuff like that, you know. And it's another piece of art. This is called Drumhead, right? And this is uh, one of the first days Ludwig Drum ever did it. Everyone wants a piece of a piece. So I joined Rod. I'll show you something really interesting, though. This is a letter from Fred Astaire. Wow. You see, look at that beautiful handwriting. You know, I, I had given him a drum book. So he writes, thanks so much for the sending me the book with a nice message in it. It was a delight to get. You sure are terrific, and I've enjoyed your work many times, Fred Astaire. Isn't that cool? That's awesome. Now, it's I, my eye of Buddy Rich. <laughs> now, that, that there is, like, unbelievable. Nobody has that, you know? A letter from Fred Astaire. I don't see That's yeah. something that's crazy. Now, you, you showed the artwork, and, and if you go to your website, yeah. there's there you, you collaborated with Ed Hack. How did, how did this... How does what's the deal with the artwork? Because it's very cool looking, and it's and yet there's one with six pictures of you. It looks like. How did that come about? Yeah. Well, Ed Heck was a uh, artist from New York. My 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 wife was a uh, a radio talk show host in New York. Her name was the Radio Chick. She was like a female Howard Stern. Very big. When I met her, she had billboards all over New York and New Jersey on the back of buses and everything. And uh, I went on her show, and that's actually how I met her. And uh, and he was a guest on her show, and. Uh, and his kids were drummers. So when I started you know, going out with her and all that, uh, we became friendly with Ed. And then Ed said, you know, 
we could do some drawings. If you, if you draw them and then I'll color them and then we can print them and sell them. And so we started doing that. And Drumhead, that one there, was the very first one. And and Drum City was the second one, you know. And then we now we got a whole bunch of them. But I, I don't really, you know, spend the time to really push him to sell them, you know. I just like like looking at them because they're, they're really beautiful colors. Yeah, the colors caught me. I mean, that's that's something you know. Whenever yeah. you see a picture, the colors pop out. You always go, okay. Yeah. it drives you to it. Yeah, and he's great that way. I mean, here's like 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 other stuff here. You got you know citation. This is a uh, the seventh music award, the Hollywood Palladium Lifetime Achievement Award in L.A. This is from Sabian Symbols Lifetime Achievement. This is a Rock Gods Wall, Rock Gods Hall of Fame. 
and she learned to play Rod Trump. I go, man, he looks all played out and the material was terrible. So I said, I'm going to write a book. Uh, 30 days I wrote a book and now it sold almost 400,000 units. You know? Now, it's still now coming out again. But this is my favorite con concert, my two idols, Joe Morello and Buddy Rich and me. Now, how, how did that come about? How did that come about? And, and what was it like it, to share, it, see your it, idol at uh, this show? It was, a, it, it was a clinic. It was a Sam Ash music store clinic. See, Sam Ash and Ludwig Drum Company. We all played Ludwig, you know, and, and Sam Ash was the presenter uh, in Long Island. And it was done at my manager's venue. He was a promoter. This is more my, my girlfriend, you know, my wife, my girlfriend. It's 18 years. I don't know what to call her. And she was on TV as well. So she had a TV show. And I gave her one of my guitars songs as a theme. Miss Ed Heck did that as a self-portrait. You know? And now we go in this room, and there's the other drum set. There's a pink electric drum set. Right? And this is where she does her podcast in here. This is her little studio. And there's the Lovebirds and Ed Heck did. See, you've got a mustache. <laughs> And this is her little thing. She puts a computer up here and she does a, a, a great podcast called uh, A Life's Story, which has become number 19 on, uh, I think it's Apple uh, Podcasts for uh, documentaries. It's you know? awesome. So, yeah, so that's so quite, it's a nice setup. You know? it's, it's quite the uh, shrine to drumming. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of history oh, yeah. in there. Unbelievable. And see these bass drums? These bass drums are 1971 cactus bass drums that I played, you know, and uh, they sound good. And all these cymbals are prototype, they're prototype Sabian cymbals. And there's a, a pink leopard slingling snare drum, you know, and, uh, you know, and my brother Vinny built me the computer system. And that table, see that table? I've got that table since 1966. Wow. That table was at my, when I was first marriage. I've been married five times, so that's why I, people say to Leslie, you guys get married, you're going to marry him, he'll marry anybody. <laughs> so, okay. that, table, that table went from my first marriage to my parents' house. My parents had it forever. And then, uh, you know, when they passed away, we went to the house and, you know, we took stuff. I took the, you know, the, the proclamation and, uh, and I took that table. I said, well, I'll use it for something. So there it is. And I got, you know, I just, uh, just like my, my little hangout, you know, so I come in here, I work out, and then I, I'll go and maybe play some tracks. I have to do a couple of tracks today. Now, you know? I want to talk to you. You know, you, you've had such a great career. You have this this new project, the uh, APP, with, uh, yeah. with uh, yeah. Fernando Cortona. Now, how, right, down, how did that happen? How, yeah. how did you guys meet? And what was the process? Well, we met by act, not by accident, but uh, Fernando was a, a, a kid that was been doing solo albums for uh, a European label. So, uh, you know, the producer, Tom Dowd, he produced all, all the Rod stuff I was on. And, uh, you know, he's been around forever. I know him for a long time. Anyway, so I knew his family, his wife, his daughter. So they called me. Um, when I moved to Florida here, I, the studio is only a year old, a little over a year old. You know, I did a lot of work in here. So they called me and said, there's a guy named Fernando who Tom was going to work with before he passed away. 
you know, and then he passed away. And he just called and asked if, if, if they knew how to get a hold of me. You know, I said, uh, so they said, yeah, why? Because he said he wants me to play on some tracks. So they called me and they said, what do you think? I said, and I'm thinking to myself, well, I just got this studio. I really don't know how to use it. I know how to use it somewhat, but this might be a good opportunity to learn how to use it more and get a better drum sound and all that. So I said, well, let's talk to him. So he called me. And so we decided to let me send him something. Uh, you know, I write songs on my iPad, you know, iPad GarageBand. So I sent him something. He sent it back to me. And his parts sounded great. He played bass, he played guitar, and he played keyboards. I said, wow, this kid's really talented. I put drums on it, and it sounded great. That was the first song. It's called Thunder on the album. That's the first thing we ever we did. So then he said, send me something else. So I sent him this other thing called uh, uh, the Jackson Groove, you know. And, uh, and then he played that one. Sent it back to me. I put drums on that one. And then we had the mix. They sounded great. So he said, I got something to send you. So okay. So he sent me one of his. So then I played on that and sent it back to him. But I added some drums at the end. You know, it became Little Havana and Big Havana. Little Havana was the one he did. Big Havana is what I put on it. I just put on this kick-ass, like, uh, cactus kind of, parchment farm kind of groove. And then he played guitar to it, you know. So then I said, well, I have some drum tracks. Why don't I send you the drum tracks and see what you could do with those? So I did that. And like uh, Flower Child was like done like that. And, uh, and I said, wow, this is really cool. So I kept doing that back and forth all year, all through COVID from like August, September of last year. And by the time we had, I don't know, maybe February, we had 18 songs done. You know, and uh, I said, well, then, you know, I'm going to talk to Cleopatra Records, you know, my friends, and see if they'll release this stuff, because I think it's really good. It's not, normally when, you, when people are doing instrumental albums, they're usually jazz oriented, you know, jazz rock, like Ma Vishnu, the stuff Jeff Beck does now, you know, uh, but Steve Vai's stuff, you know, it's more jazzy than rock. So I said, well, this stuff is more rock. So it's like progressive rock with no vocals, you know? So I got the deal on Cleopatra. So we picked 12 of the 18 songs. And now we have six songs towards a second album, you know? And we can, it's very easy for us to write stuff, you know? Now you said, you said in the beginning you wrote him, you wrote some songs and sent them to him. Are you just yeah. writing all the music or, I mean, how does that work? Because there's no, it's, it's just, as you said, it's just instrumental. Well, what do you send him? Well, well, I wrote, what I sent him first was was uh, Thunder that had a melody, you know? Whatever melody's on the song, which I can't think of now, you know, is what I sent him on my iPad, you know? And then he took what I did and he played it and added some embellishments of his own, and it came out great. And then I put the drums on it. And once I put the drums on it, it became what it is now. You know, so it's, we were never in the same room together. What is that like? Because, you know, you come from a background where you had to be in the studio. I mean, years later, you must look at it and go, holy shit, this is so easy. I mean, do you just sit there and get inspired? Well, well, it it is easy. You know why? Because this happened to me when 
Stone. What year was that? 1982, when we were doing the Vanilla Fudge uh, Mystery Album. Because before that, it would be you go in the studio and you say, okay, well, let's get the drums down. Uh, take one. Uh, something happens. Screwed up. Take two. Take three. Yeah, by the time you get up to take 15, you lost the feel of the song. But meanwhile, once you get the drums, then the guitar player can go in. He can do as many takes as he wants. He punches in, he punches out. Singer punches in, punches out. Bass player punches in, punches out. I said, I want the drums to do that. I want to be able to punch in and punch out. Like, if I get the whole song's really good, but there's uh, four bars which I didn't like, I want to be able to punch in those four bars. So that's what I started developing with myself in the uh, 1982 with the Vanilla Fudge first uh, mystery album. And I did that. And then we did an album with Rick Derringer, Derringer and a Piece. I did it then too, you know. And then we did uh, a King Cobra record. Uh, the first one we didn't do like that. The second one we did. And then ev pretty much every record I've done after that, Blue Murder, we did that at Blue Murder. Matter of fact, with Blue Murder, I had the whole record done. And then Bob Rock came up to me and said, we got a much better drum sound now. You want to redo the drums? I go, yes. And we redid all the drums to the click. You know, and I was able to punch in an album. I said, on that album, I tried never to duplicate a drum fill. All the drum fills on that record are different. So it created a way of recording for me that... I enjoy it because it used to be you go into the tracks and the pressure is all on me to get the drums down. Now I go in and record one or two tracks and I pick the one I like and then I, I pick what I don't like about it and I punch in and fix it. And then I get one complete take that's really good. And then next, guitar or bass or whatever, you know. Now, what made you fall in love with the drums? How did you become a drummer? Well, my cousin was a drummer, you know, older than me, had a drum set in his house. Whenever the family went to visit him, I always jumped up on a drum, started banging him. And then I banged the pots and pans. And then my parents bought me toy drum sets when I was a kid. And then when I was about 15, maybe, uh, was it 15? Yeah, maybe 14, maybe. Um, maybe even 13. I can't even remember. They, they, they saw that I really enjoyed the show. My birthday's in December and Christmas is 10 days later. So we went to Sam Ash and we bought my first real drum set for $55. It was way on top of the shelf, you know. There was a snare drum, a bass drum, and a cymbal. But to me, it was like, that was it. I bought it downstairs in Brooklyn in my cellar. Not a finished basement, we're talking a cellar. You know, I had stone floor, I had stone walls. My grandfather was a shoemaker. He had a little compartment down in the cellar where he fixed shoes. Like he'd always fix our shoes when you know, needed new leather and stuff. So he's down there banging, and I'd be trying to practice stuff, and he would be in a different tempo. And I'd ask him, Grandpa, play this tempo like this, bang like this, two, three, four, one. And he'd start cursing at me in Italian and run upstairs, you know. And then I'd play, and... Uh, I bring my little $20 Victrola down, you know, one of those little portable guys, and I'd listen to Gene Cooper and Buddy Rich and, and their album. People, like, when I do interviews now, they go, what was your first album? They expect me to say, like, the Beatles or the Rolling Stones. And I'd say, Gene Cooper and Buddy Rich. And they go, who? <laughs> you know? 
was it their sound that drew you to them? I mean, because my brother was a drummer, and it's funny when you talk about the basement. We had a basement that had cinder blocks, and it wasn't finished, and we took his drums down there, and I was always pissed off because our basement used to flood a little bit, so my parents took apart the ping-pong table to put my brother's drums on top of them so they wouldn't get wet. So I, I know the deal, but what was it that attracted you to a Krupa and a Rich? I, I don't know. I just the banger. Here's the radio chick. Hi. She is. Hello. Can't see it. It's just oh, here we go. He's, he's little there. Say hello. Hi. I was just showing him around. I showed him your billboards and everything. Who is it? Oh, who is it, she says. Steve Cooper from Cooper Talk. I can't hear him. Cooper Town. Cooper Talk. What's, what's your first name? Steve. Steve Steve Cooper. Oh, Steve Cooper, like my buddy is promoter. Steve Cooper from Cooper Town. Cooper Talk. Show. Oh. Cooper Talk. Cooper Talk. Okay. All right. She's going out to meet with her girlfriend. She's coming to tell me she's leaving. Okay. Yeah, the dogs and the plane. Okay. <laughs> All right. Cool, Steve. Yeah. Yeah. You could tell. You could tell my age when when people ask me about like who you talking to. I forgot. <laughs> So so no so what was what was it about their sound that drew you to them was it just their talent was it I don't know I don't know I just saw my my cousin play them and I liked it you know he sounded good playing them you know and uh, and then when I got my drums I just was inspired I listened to Buddy Rich and Gene Krupa my mother used to tell me stories of Gene Krupa playing theaters and and uh, everybody dancing in the aisles and it kind of inspired me you know. So where do you go from there? I mean, well, I know you know you've had a great career. What, what do you do? You're in you're in Long Island, you know. You're, you're no, I'm in Brooklyn. You're in Brooklyn. In Brooklyn. Okay, so, so what's the music scene like? I mean, how do you form a band in Brooklyn back then? Well, I mean, I had a guy up the street that played trumpet, and he knew a guy that played guitar. You know, I'm sorry, the guy up the street played acoustic guitar, and he knew a guy that played trumpet, and he also doubled on guitar. So he said, "Hey, why don't we start a band?" Acoustic guitar, a trumpet, and me. So we used to get together at my house. They'd come into my cellar, and, and we would play songs like At the Hop and uh, It Ain't Nothing But a Hound Dog, stuff like that, you know? And then we found out the other guy played guitar also. He had an electric guitar. So then we did electric guitar, acoustic guitar, and drums. And we played our first gig in the Bronx. And I actually have the book, you know, those, those composition books when you were a kid for school? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I had one. Of, I had three of those books. The first one had my very first gig in it because I kept, you know, like January, February. It was 1961 was my first gig. And I made $7.50, you know. And, and they made $7.50 too. And we put all the equipment in my father's trunk of his Dodge car and drove up to the Bronx. I don't even know how we got this gig. It was some sort of dance, you know. It was terrible, but hey, I made $7.50 playing drums. Exactly. Yeah. Now, now that started your career. Now, how did Vanilla, yes. Fudge, how did Vanilla Fudge come about? Because I want to talk about you just did a new uh, a single in September you released with Vanilla Fudge. Yes. But how did Vanilla Fudge come about? Well, I had a group called Thursday's Children with a, a guy named Bobby Spinelli and this other guy named Sammy Sicallo. It was a trio. And we did have this guy, Dean Parrish, playing with us. Dean Parrish went on to become a, a, a northern soul artist in England and had a number one record that didn't know it in the 70s. And yeah, he just passed away like this year. And we were still friends. I was still doing recordings. But I recorded stuff for him here in my studio. So I've been trying to get it out, but I can't get an answer from his daughter who runs his estate. But 
so we had this band. We were playing a club called the Choo Choo Club where the Rascals started. And uh, this guy, Mark and, and Tim, came in. And they were watching me play. And when we took a break, they came up to me and said, hey, you know, I'm Mark Stein. I'm Tim Bogut. We have a band called The Pigeons. And we're looking for a new drummer. And we were watching you play. And you, we wanted a guy that could sing. And we wanted a guy that was technical enough to do what we're trying to do, which is something new. I said, okay, what are you trying to do? And he said, well, we're doing what, what's going on in Long Island. It's called production numbers. And we want you, we, we want a guy like you that's technical enough to play and has a good right foot that, that plays R&B, but plays powerful and, and can sing. I said, well, all right, well, I don't know. I'm doing pretty good here. I'm making like 250 a week, you know, back in the day, 1966. 250 a week was pretty good money because I used to, when I got out of high school, I worked all week for minimum wage and I took home 45 bucks, you know, that's when I said to my father, what should I do? Work as a musician and make 200, 250 a week or work as a stupid clerk in, in the city and make 45 bucks and get up early in the morning, work all day. So he said, well, maybe you should be a musician. I said, thank you. So I quit my job, you know, and, uh, and then, I said, uh, uh, you know, all right, let me listen to you guys, you know. So they said, well, come out to Long Island. And I had a, I had a brand new uh, car at the time, a 67 Chevy, a 60, not, no, I still have my 64 Chevy. I bought that 64 Chevy from playing drums, you know, and it was brand new when I bought it. And I drove that out to Long Island and I played with the Vanilla Fudge called The Pigeons. And I had never played with a bass player before because all my bands had a left-hand bass on a keyboard, on a B3 or on a Farfisa or whatever. So when I played with Tim Bogut, I said, wow, this guy's like Jameson out of Motown. You know, and Mark Stein was an unbelievable singer because in all the bands I had, I sang, everybody sang, but nobody was a great singer. I was, I was an okay singer, an adequate singer. I was good at harmony. I could sing lead. But Mark Stein was like a really amazing singer. And Tim Bogart sang these high notes like I never heard a guy sing before. And they all had the same vibrato that I had, you know. So I really liked playing with them. So I said, you know what? What's the deal? They said, well, we got this manager that owns this big club, and he's going to put us on a salary. And we're going to, you know, do this thing where we're going to make up these arrangements and maybe we'll get a record deal, or at least we can draw crowds like the Vagrants that had Leslie West in it. My manager's club was big. They used to draw 2,000 people on a Friday or Saturday night. And I said, that's what the goal was, you know? So we started doing that, but we bypassed that club scene because we had better musicians and we had four voices. And we got a record deal with You Keep Me Hanging On. And it's I've joined it. Nine months later, we had a single on the charts. I said, wow, that was easy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you just, you, you, you know, you just came out with a, with a song with them uh, in September. Tell me about that. That's that's another, that's uh, stopping a name a lot. Yes. How did that come about? Well, that came about by our manager, Tom Vitorino, who managed us a few years ago, managed the Doors, when the Doors of the 21st century were together with Robbie and, and Ray. And uh, 
you know, he, we just got back with him recently, the last couple of, just before the COVID stuff, you know, like 2019. And he said, you know, we did an album called uh, Led Zeppelin Covers. It was his idea. He said, instead of doing like a cover of this one, that one, do somebody like a whole album. And we did that a few years ago. And then, you know, we split up from him. And then we got back together with him. We said, you know, you, I think you guys should do next. Let's do an album called Supreme Fudge. I have a record company that would like to do it. And you do maybe six Supreme songs, a couple other R&B songs, and a couple of originals. What do you think? I said, I think that's a great idea. You know? So we started doing it. Tim wasn't in the band at the time. Tim retired 10 years ago. But Tim was very sick. So we did the track for that song. And I said, you know what? Let's try and get Tim on it. You know, you know, let's try and get Tim on as many of these tracks as we can. So it's the original band. So I asked him, he said, yeah, that's fine. So that was done in December of 19. In January of 2020, I went to the NAMM show. I took the tra tracks with me, went to uh, the Valley, to Jorgen from Government Mule, his the bass player at Government Mule's studio. Tim came there. We did, we did the bass on that. And then we realized the drums were messed up, so I had to do the drums over. And then after we did that, COVID hit. And that was the end of doing an album. So the manager said, well, maybe we have to, that song. Let's do a single. Uh, we'll turn it into a singles deal. Okay, so that's what we did. <laughs> and then when I got the studio going here, and I got the drum sound going, I recut the drums here. And then we started mixing it at the beginning of the year of 2021 and it came out and then Tim passed away in January so that became the last song Tim ever recorded with us and it sort of closed the book on the original band recording together and it was beginning was hanging on and the end was stopping the name of love now there's also a song isn't it about Tim Bogart on the on the with that that you put out it's not a song it's talking Tell me it's about an that. audio documentary that my my that Leslie did because that's what she does now. She's doing audio documentaries in her podcast. So she did an audio documentary of me, Vinny, and Mark talking about Tim as a tribute. Now, Vanilla Fudge is doing some tour dates. What what pulled what brought you guys apart when you when you back in the in the late sixties? Uh, me and Tim wanted to play with Jeff Beck and Rod Stewart. And Jeff Beck called me and wanted to do a band. And that's basically what did it. So, and then when we actually broke the band up, Rod didn't want to work with Jeff. And then Jeff got in a car wreck. Every 18 months, he couldn't do anything. Me and Tim didn't want to sit around. We broke the fudge up already. And in those days, once you break a group up, you don't go back to them you know, a month later. You know, so we said, all right, let's do Cactus with somebody else. We already had the name. So we got Jim McCarty and Rusty Day. It was sort of a super group. And, you know, Blind Faith and West Bruce and Lang, there were other super groups being created, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. So we thought McCarty was from uh, Buddy Miles Express and, and the Detroit Wheels. And Rusty was from uh, the Amboy Dukes. You know, so everybody, a lot of people knew them. So that's what we did. And that's why. Now you're you're you have some dates coming up. 
how do you yes. how do you choose what you're going to play? What was it like? I mean, how did you guys decide to start playing together again? Well, we started in 2001. I was in Japan touring, and uh, uh, I was in Japan touring, and and I I got a call that uh, that Finella Fudge were playing in Japan, you know, without me. Well, it was Tim Vinny and two other guys. And I said, so I called Tim. I said, what are you doing? He didn't even ask me to play. He goes, well, you know, you're doing all this other stuff. I said, I'm in Japan right now. And, you know, you can't play Japan without me. And I said, my manager at the time, we negotiated the deal, put me in the band. So it was the three of us. And I said, where's Mark? He said, he didn't want to do it. So we started playing. You know, in Japan, then there was other gigs offered us in, in New York. We played Westbury, and the place was packed. And uh, uh, the Rascals, uh, was it the Rascals? Yeah. Uh, the Rascals opened up for us. Uh, Felix's Rascals opened up for us, I think. Anyway, and uh, we had 3,000 people there. It was amazing, you know. And then we had other gigs booked, and then we got an injunction from Mark Stein, you know. <laughs> saying that we couldn't use the name Vanilla Fudge. And then it turned into a big lawsuit and a mess. And we, we settled it and we were able to use it. We had to give him a, a piece of the action. And then, you know, that went on for a few years. And then in 2004 or five, uh, I was fed up with it. And I heard that the doors were back together and Stu, Stuart Copeland was in it. And, didn't, and then he wasn't in it. And my friend was the uh, tour manager. And Phil Chen from the Rod Stewart band was in it. And he said, why don't you talk to the manager and maybe you could join the Doors. I said, yeah, that'd be awesome. So I did that. And the manager said, what do you want to join the Doors for? You, you, you're part of Vanilla Fudge. <laughs> so I told him all the stuff going on. He said, look, I think I could really do some great stuff with Vanilla Fudge. So why don't we try and get a meeting together with the original band and see what we can do? I said, okay. So he pulled off a meeting with everybody sorted everything out in 2006 we went out with the doors of the 21st century we played a tour with, with sheds in the summertime you know, playing in front of 15,000 people every night and it was great you know it was great until the doors drummer sued the doors <laughs> they couldn't use the name so all the dates got blown out and then while they got blown out, we went home. Tim was riding his motorcycle, got in a motorcycle wreck, and he was out of commission for six months. So all the momentum we had going went down the shitter. <laughs> no. So then we've been on and off ever since. Now, when you tour now, like, okay, I know you start October 26th. Who's all in the band now? Who's the band? It, it's still me, Mark, and Timmy, and Vinny, and Pete Gramey, who's been in the band since Tim retired 10 years ago now how did you find him because you guys you know you, you, the band well, has such musical history together well tim uh pete was tim's uh main influence i mean he loved tim pete he was a big gigantic he was tim's biggest fan you know he came to all the shows in new york he was always there and we got to know him and then when we needed uh, a tour manager, yeah, he, he said, I could do it, you know. So we took him as a tour manager, and he got really close. And then a couple of times, 
I think it was like a, that uh, sound checks when Tim was late. Pete played the part and sang the, sang the part. And then we said, oh, my God, T- Pete can play that stuff. And then one time Tim got really sick. And Pete played the whole show because he knew all the parts. So when Tim wanted to retire, he, Tim said, well, just get Pete to play for me. You know, he knows everything. He's a good guy. So we did. So if you look at your website, you have a great website. It's very, uh, that's where I found out about the painting. It was great. But you also have some tour dates with Cactus. Now, now who's the lineup yeah. of Cactus now? How, how did, and how did you find a good lineup? <coughs> well, uh, the, the lineup of Cactus now is, hold on, I just lost you. The lineup of Cactus now is me, Paul Warren, uh, James Caputo, who are on the last two tours we've done. Uh, and it was James, uh, J- uh, Jimmy Coons and Randy Pratt. That was been the lineup for the last two years. We did the album Tightrope with that lineup, the last album. And then we booked these gigs. All of a sudden, Jim, uh, James, uh, Jimmy Coons said, after he, he said he was going to do them, said, I don't want to do these dates. I said, well, come on, dude. You know, I don't want to blow these dates out. They're the only dates we have for Cactus, you know, since this, this stupid uh COVID baloney. So I said, all right, let's get somebody else. And Jim, Jimmy Caputi was supposed to be on tour as a roadie with Blondie. Right? And then that got blown out, so he came back in. And then uh, Randy's wife had a, had a uh, an operation, so he had to stay home with her. But he said, I got this great harmonica player from Long Island. You know, so I heard him, he is great. He said, I'll get him to do it, and I'll pay him to do it. I said, okay, fine. So now we have a whole new lineup for these shows. But now we just found out that the, the main show on this on the Sunday, who's the, the main money show, thought that we canceled it because we didn't put it on the Cactus website because nobody even looks at that website, you know? So now we're at a, a fork in the road here. We're trying to figure out if we could do the other two shows without the other show, if he doesn't come back, he still has a month to promote it, you know? So it's just a bit of a mess, but it's just like the, these three shows have been nothing but bad luck for Cactus. Right. You know, so I'm thinking maybe we shouldn't do it. You know? Now, do you, do you miss performing live? I mean, since I know you have the date starting totally, October 26th. Totally, totally. I played three shows with my brother last week. Two weeks ago, it was awesome. I couldn't wait. To, uh, I was hoping we'd, we'd do more than that, but we only had three. And uh, you know, one we had four. One got blown out for COVID. Still, uh, now we have nine with the fudge, and we had three with cactus. If the all three happen, it's going to be twelve shows. If if we do two, it'll be eleven shows. And there's some talk about Florida and with the fudge and Robbie in December. You know. Now, earlier, so, yeah. earlier when you were showing me your uh, the gold the gold albums and platinum albums, um, you know we know you played with Rod Stewart. How, how did that come about? How did you end up playing with Rod? Well, I've known Rod since '68. You know, I mean, Rod and Ronnie Wood came to see Vanilla Fudge record because we had the same attorney. They they came in like two little boys and sat in the corner, you know, and uh, and then. Yeah, we, we toured with Cactus, with the, with the Faces. We did 30, 40 shows with them. You know, so we, I've known Rods for a long time. So uh, one day I was walking in L.A. with my friend Sandy Zanero, 
I saw him. I go, hey, what are you doing? He goes, I just auditioned for Rod Stewart. I go, oh, did you get it? He goes, no. He said, but you should talk, call him. I said, who are you calling? He said, this guy, Pete Buckland. I go, I know Pete Buckland. He's the tour manager we toured with, with Cactus, for the faces. So he gave me Pete's number. So I called Pete. I said, Rod's looking for a drummer. You don't call me? And he said, well, you're always busy. I said, well, I'm not busy. I love to play with Rod. I love Rod. You know that. So he said, I'll, I'll call Rod and tell him. So Rod said to Pete, tell Carmen to go to my house, give him the address. The band is there, auditioning drummers. Have Carmen check the band out, see if he likes it. I said, that's a switch, you know. So I went. I liked the band. I knew two members. You know, I knew uh, <coughs> Phil Chen from the blow-by-blow blow sessions I did with Jeff, and I knew Jim Cregan from a couple of shows I did in London while I was there. So I played with them. Sounded great. You know, I was very impressed by Rod's mansion and his car collection. I said, this is where I want to play with this guy, you know? <laughs> so then Rod came home. We played together, and he said, hey, play like you did in Cactus if you want it. I'll give you a solo every night. I know you have uh, fans. It's up to you. I said, I'm in. Let's go. And then the band was the Rod Stewart group. We actually had a percentage of the tour dates. So it was great. Great relationship for seven years. Now, how did you end up writing with him? Because you co-wrote some of his big hits. Did he come and ask he you? Was, he was just fair. He said to everybody, I want a song like Missing You. And whoever comes in with it, gets it. I got it. I, I wrote it. I went to my friend Dwayne's house. He put, we put it down on a demo. Dwayne played keyboard, came up with another little extra part, so he was in on it too. And Rod loved it. That was it. And then after that, then when I said, well, me and Dwayne have an idea for another song, that became Young Turks. And then that also became the same kind of uh, instrumentation for the Tonight I'm Yours for the album title of that album. You know, so... And I was involved in the co-production. I helped Rod. I, I helped, like, co-produce Rod when he was doing vocals. I did the background vocals. I arranged the background vocals on "You're in My Heart." Yeah, we we're part of the band. It was a band effort, you know. Now, when did you get interested in getting into producing? My first, my first production was 1969 with Vanilla Fudge. I produced uh, Shotgun. You know, we all produced the song. So, so then, then '79, when I when I was with Rod, I produced a Japanese singer while I was uh, touring with Rod, and uh, she was big in Japan and went really well in Japan. As a matter of fact, uh, the first arrangement of "Do You Think I'm Sexy" was a bit different than what end, how it ended up, and and we changed the arrangement. So I took that same arrangement and I gave it to this chick. Uh, Carmen Maki was her name. It was a fairly big name in Japan. And we wrote another song to that called I Just Fell in Love Again. Right? But it sounds like the original version of Sexy. Why did you change it? Just because you thought you needed a different song? Oh, because, because Rod, was the, he was the leader. He wanted to change something on it. So we changed some stuff. You know? We did it. When, when we did it with three guitars, bass drums, and a keyboard... It sounded real rock, you know? And then Tom Dowd, the producer, brought in David Foster and Tom Scott and an orchestra and uh, female singers singing the... We had two octaves up and 
before you know it, everything was on 224s. When you do that, everything shrunk the sound, and it became more disco-sounding than rock-sounding. And then that's how it came out. But hey, who's going to complain? It went to number one in every country. What, yeah. what was your experience in shooting videos back then? Because, you know, videos were such an elaborate thing, I'm sure. Oh, my God. Expensive. Big deals. I was like doing a movie, you know? Uh, I think that the most <coughs> movie-like video I've done, there were two of them, the, the one, three, three, really. The two for Blue Murder and the Bark at the Moon video for Ozzy, you know? They were, like, so expensive. They had huge crews. The, the Blue Murder videos were 150 grand a piece. You know, now, three grand. How did Blue Murder come about? How did what? Blue Murder come about. Well, I had heard Blue Murder was uh, a band with Cozy Powell, uh, Tony, John, and uh, Ray Gillen. And I was really pissed because, you know, Cozy always, you know, in in the first two bands that Cozy was in, Jeff Beck Group and Rainbow, I was asked to do both of those, and I couldn't, and they got cozy. So I used to say to Cozy, are you my professional replacement, you know? So then he's in Blue Murder. I go, damn, that Cozy gets all the good gigs. And then I heard he was out, so I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go try again into Blue Murder. I went to England where my brother Vinny was playing with Dio. I figured somebody there would know how to get a hold of somebody in the Blue Murder camp, and I was correct. And when I was there, I went and played with those guys, and they, John Sykes came up and said, man, we, we've auditioned all these guys, Tommy Aldridge and, and Ainsley Dunbar and this one and that one. You got so many drum fills. You, you, you locked in with us so good. So you're in if you want it. It was almost like that rod thing, you know. I said, let's go, you know. That was it. Now, has your, has your reputation for being such a great drummer opened a lot of doors for you. I mean, it seems like these jobs have been easy. Has there been any jobs that you wanted to get and you didn't get? Uh, well, I wanted to get the Rainbow gig, and I wanted to play with Jeff Beck. I didn't get him. It wasn't because of talent. It was because of the situation, you know? And another one was the uh, John Sykes and, and Coverdell asked me to do that huge 87 album, one of those huge hits. Right, but I was signed to Capitol Records with King Cobra. I couldn't just jump ship and go join that, you know. So I said I had my own snake to deal with, you know. And that album came out. They got, they got. I recommended why don't you go get Ainsley? They got Ainsley. Twenty-seven million albums later, that was a big mistake. So. Yeah, but you've had you've had so many good things happen. How did how did you come up pop playing with Ozzy? Uh, they just called me out of the blue. I was in Cannes, France at a Symphonic convention. I was a, a spokesperson for the electronic drums, Symphonic drums. And uh, and they, uh, uh, Sharon called me, or my manager called me, said, Sharon Osborne's looking for you. I said, what did I do? You know? And she said, I think she wants you to work with Ozzy. I said, really? Because, you know, I... My brother Vinny was asked to join Ozzy when he first put the, the band together. And I told him not to do it because, you know, I was sitting with Ozzy at the Rainbow and he couldn't even sit up, you know, without being, his, his face fell down into a bowl of spaghetti from being too stoned. 
You know, and I said, this ain't going nowhere, Vin. Don't forget about it. So he didn't do it. And he still brings that up to me, believe me. You know? <laughs> so uh, she called me and said, look, uh, Tommy Aldridge is out. We'd love for you to play with Ozzy. I understand you're in France. Can you come to London? I said, well, you fly me to London and fly me back to L.A. I can come to London. So I, I did that. I went. I played with them. I knew Jakey Lee from L.A. I knew Bob Daisley a bit. And I didn't know Don Airy, and I knew Ozzy from Ozzy from Sabbath, because on their first tour they played gigs with Cactus, Black Sabbath. You know, so we played, and everything was cool. And I said, "Yeah, I'd like to do it." She told me what the deal was, and then when we actually did the deal for the touring, I told her that in America I do master classes, and uh, in the afternoon, and I give money to charities, and I did, you know. My manager worked out a deal that I had my own uh, merchandise. It wasn't really merchandise, just a T-shirt. And uh, apparently those two things ended up being problems for Sharon. That's why she fired me. And when she fired me, she said, your name is too big. We need somebody, you know, who's just a drummer. You need to start your own band. So I sued her. And I also started my own band, King Cobra. Now, I, I have one final question. I want to talk to you real quick. In 2016, you wrote your autobiography. What made yeah. you What made you decide to write that? And tell me one good story out of that that you fucking love. Right, I got a, I got a good story. Yeah. Well, I've been writing that book for a long time. It used to be called The International Rock Guide to Hotel Wrecking. <laughs> okay, I haven't the manuscript for that started in the mid 80s. You know. And my manager, you know, typed them out off the tapes that I wrote. I did a dozen tapes. He lost four of them somehow. You know, so I've had that since the 80s. And then you know, I kept going on the back burner, the back burner. And then finally, uh, I had a man another manager that took manager that got me a deal on VH1 books for a good advance. And then got me the, the co-writer who wrote Nikki Six's book, Ian Giddings. And then we wrote the book. By the time we finished writing the book, VH1 said they're going out of business. But they they gave me my advance, and then we went out and got two other deals with not very big companies. And I was really disappointed with the sales on both of them, you know. But the people, the 10,000 people that did buy it, love it. And it's very X-rated. You know, and when I sell it at gigs I, and women pick it up to buy it, I said, I just want to let you know it's X-rated. That's why it's called Sex, Drums, and Rock and Roll. And they said, oh, good. And that's what my writer said. He said, the women are going to love the sex in it. I said, okay. Uh, so anyway, but a good story was uh, when my brother was playing in the city in a band that the record plant was managing, he was asked to come downstairs with his whole band and do some hand claps for an artist they were producing. Jimmy Iovine was doing it. But Jimmy used to go into town every day with my brother. The artist was John Lennon. They did hand claps on whatever gets you through the night. And then John liked the guys in the band and my brother. And they started hanging out with John, smoking pot, playing pool at the record plant. So one day my brother says to John, hey, you like Italian food? And he goes, yeah, I like Italian food. And this is like... Uh, what year was this? This was, I don't even know what year it was. But, but my, my, so he says, because my mother makes Italian food for like, you know, my brother's band, Vanilla Fudge, 
and Cactus and Jeff Beck. He goes, yeah, I love Italian food. She goes, I'll have him make you some. So my mother made some lasagna. Gives it to my brother. He gives it to John Lennon. And a couple of months go by. I'm playing Madison Square Garden 79 with Rod. We're doing five nights at the garden. My mother come and my mother and father come to the garden to see us. We're backstage. John Lennon's there. And later we go to a party and John Lennon's there. My mother says, hey, you know, Vinnie gave lasagna to John Lennon. I never, I never found out if he liked it or not. I said, no kidding. I said, well, let's go ask him. So I met him that afternoon. I went over. I said, hey, John, you know, my mother, you know, you know my brother Vinnie? Yes, my mother, my father. She made you lasagna. He goes, oh, yeah. He, she did make me lasagna. So my mother said, how'd you, how'd you like it? He goes, oh, I loved it. It was delicious. So my, my mother says, could I have the pan back? <laughs> All right? Now that's I, a... I, I sunk in my, in, you know, I shrunk down to two feet, you know? <laughs> No, that's a story, man. You know, I, I want to thank you for uh, coming on today, Carmine. Where can people find the, the new album, the uh, the uh, APP? Uh, they, they, they can find it on uh, on um, anywhere, really. I, I haven't put it on my al- on my website yet. So I just got albums today in the mail, you know. So, uh, but you can get it uh, on Amazon anywhere you buy music stores, Amazon. Uh, but I will be getting. It, on my website, com. You know, right now you can get Guitar Zeus on there and you can get uh, the book and drum books and stuff like that. Uh, I will be putting this up. Uh, I have to send a picture of it and tell my web guy to put it up. Actually, people... Go check out Carmine's website. Just go go Google him and go listen to some of his music. Go to my website, yeah. coopertalk.net. You can find over 875 episodes. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Uh, Twitter, wow. at coopertalk. And remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time. Thank you.